The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. It's not easy to score a successful song in Nashville, what some call a bullet. Sometimes what it takes is a little more than talent and a little less than legal. When singer and music researcher Kevin Hughes was gunned down on Music Row, prosecutors say he was killed to keep him from exposing a dirty business practice in the music industry. But who would want him dead? I'm Vinny Politan, and on this week's Court TV podcast, we're taking you in for a closer look at this case with an audio edition of our original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. This week's episode is entitled, A Hit with a Bullet. This is the Court TV Podcast. Nashville's always been Music City, USA. It draws the dreamers. There was kind of a, a, an underbelly of the music business that sort of preyed on that. Kevin Hiss was just a young kid that wanted to get into the industry. Me and Kevin walked across 16th Avenue, and I said, oh my God, this guy's got a gun. The shooter shot Kevin down and fired bullets into his head. I think at first the police thought it was kind of a random thing. Now it's why would this happen? Why would they go after this individual? I lived 13 and a half years of my life wondering who shot us. Why did this happen? On the night of March 9th, 1989, friends Kevin Hughes and Sammy Sadler had just finished dinner. They stopped on Music Row to make a phone call at Evergreen Records, Sadler's record label. As they left and walked back to Kevin's car, a masked man came out of the shadows and started shooting. Sadler was wounded right away, but Hughes was chased and gunned down in the middle of the street. The murder on Music Row sent shockwaves throughout Nashville and would eventually expose a deeper, darker secret of the music business, Paola. I've always had music in me as a kid. My parents told me when I was just a little boy, I'd pull myself up to the stereo and kind of try to sing and dance. I ended up singing on a bunch of Opry's in Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana. But, you know, everything just kind of evolved as I grew and I was ate up with sports. So by the time I got ready to graduate from high school, I had to make a decision. Was I gonna pursue a baseball career, pursue music? But I guess once they say the music bug bites you, it just kind of stays in you, so that's what we ended up pursuing. Nashville's always been Music City USA, and it draws, it draws the dreamers. You know, the people that want to be the next Garth Brooks. They strap a guitar on their back, and they come to Nashville to try to get a record deal. We call them country bumpkins. They get off the bus uh, over there around Music Row. They start trying to find bars to try to get a job. It was an open industry at that time. You couldn't get that in Los Angeles or New York or Austin, Texas, anywhere. You could go up the steps to one of those publishing companies on Music Row and get in the door and say, can I leave the tape? Sure, leave it here. 
They didn't hesitate to take material. That's what made music row so important. Country music always seemed to be down home anyway, so that all fit together. There was nice people and uh, country music, and what else could you ask for? The music industry has always been the focal point of Nashville. The people that had the influence in the music industry could get anything done at any time they wanted it done by making a phone call. They pretty much controlled Nashville. There were three major trade publications. Cashbox was second largest by circulation and uh, known for jukebox operators. I believe it made some careers. Andy Travis, I think, is the one that started right there at Cashbox. I later switched over to radio, and it was kind of a competitor to Billboard. They had two different charts uh, for country music. One was the country singles chart, where like the mainstream artists would be. But there was also a country independent singles chart. And those were folks that were not signed to major labels, and they were here, you know, trying to make it somehow in the music business and get their songs on the radio. The radio airplay was everything. Independents especially thought if they crossed over from the independent to the mainstream chart, that the major labels would notice that, maybe grab them up and, you know, take them in. And that was kind of the, the goal of a lot of these artists. Some of these artists that wanted to make it in the business, they would pay a promoter to take their record and try to move it up the charts. It's like swimming around in like in shark waters. Man, you know, you got a good voice and you need to let us promote you. And that's how it started. There was sort of a, an, an underbelly of the music business that sort of preyed on that. And you had promoters that recognized, even if somebody didn't have much talent, they were, they were perfectly happy to take their, their money. It wasn't unusual for people to come here uh, and spend tens of thousands of dollars or much more than that trying to, to make it in the business. The promotion people found out that generally if they had so much money, it's better to spend it right there in that chart department than try to worry about editorial. The charts are what the people opened up and looked at and decided what to buy. So we want to be real nice to that chart guy. They liked the dollars if somebody would pay them. They manipulated the charts in two different ways. One was through the radio stations, where they would give gifts and things either to the DJs or the programmers to try to get the songs on the radio that way. And the other way was to have somebody at the magazine where this money was, was paid for the person that was compiling the chart. I graduated, moved to Nashville, and then eight months later, I uh, ended up getting a, a deal with Evergreen Records back then. Uh, it was an independent deal, but uh, still, you know, we had a deal. You made it easy. Whenever we weren't doing shows for Evergreen Records, taught me how to promote records. So that's how I ended up uh, meeting Kevin and becoming friends with him. Kevin Hiss was just a young kid that wanted to get into uh, the industry and wanted to get into uh, promotion. He had moved here from uh, Southern Illinois. He had come to attend Belmont University and, and he was in the music business program. So he found a job that paid little or nothing at Cashbox and all he had to do was uh, call these radio stations or when they called it, take their paperwork and do the charts. But what went along with that then was the promotion people starting to come in. 
Kevin had discovered what was going on at Cashbox. And he was really tormented on, on whether he should actually say anything or not. He just couldn't live with himself. So he had already told a couple of people that he was going to reveal what was going on at Cashbox. The music industry didn't want anybody to know what Paola was. It had survived so long as part of the system. It was hidden. That night, me and my wife had had an argument, and I just really wanted to get out of the house. So I picked up the phone to call Kevin. I said, hey, man, what are you doing? He said, I'm still working on the charts. And I said, well, hey, I'm going to come down and see you. And he said, OK, come on down. They went out to eat. And after they went to Evergreen Records, Sammy needed to make a phone call. And he always used Evergreen's telephone because it was free. He and Kevin uh, pulled up in front of Evergreen Records on 16th on Music Row. And they went inside. So we stopped by, got on the phone, said hello to my family and uh, everything. And I just told my mom, I'll talk to y'all later. So me and Kevin walked back out off the front porch across 16th Avenue where Kevin's car was parked. I thought I caught something moving out of the corner of my eye. And when I did, I looked up and the guy's right there on top of me with a gun. And I just threw my arms up to cover my head. And that's when he shot. Kevin was on the driver's side, dropped his keys and started running down west on 16th Avenue. And the shooter who had a mask on and a hat chased him and shot him down. and then stood over him and said, now I'm going to kill you, and fired bullets into his head. Well, at the time, I mean, it, you know, I, I guess I went into shock, because for a minute, I'm thinking, did I just get shot? And then all of a sudden, it was just like sticking a hot poker inside me. I just felt all this fire and burning, and then I fell over in the car. I followed the blood trail up some steps. When I got to the top of the steps, Sammy had crawled up under the desk as far as he could. And I thought he would, would not uh, survive the shooting. He was in pretty bad shape. Nashville's Music Row is the center of the country music industry, home to publishers, record labels, and famous recording studios. It's the last place anyone would expect a shooting, let alone a murder. At least that's what the first officer on the scene thought, a young cop and Nashville native named David Williams. March 9th, 1989. Uh, I can remember it clear as the day. As I was getting ready to get off, the call goes out as a 1052. It's a shooting on 16th Avenue. That's Music Row. So as I arrived on the scene, the first thing I seen was Kevin laying beside the car. And uh, as my experience as a law enforcement officer in assessing him, I knew pretty much that he was deceased at the time. The first thing that came to my mind was to protect the crime scene. That's one of the protocols you have to follow, render aid and protect the crime scene. To try my best, as one officer can do, to deal with over probably 20 people that were out there. I remember looking over and I said to myself, I think that's Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson. They were on the sidewalk. And I believe that people that were in there doing recordings and productions and all hours of the night, I remember looking over and seeing them. My dilemma at that time 
is do I go into foot pursuit in that area and look for the suspect? What basically stopped me from going in to try to see if I could find him, I'll never forget someone telling me there's another guy shot, and he went running that way. I followed the blood trail up some steps. When I got to the top of the steps, Sammy had crawled up under the desk as far as he could. And I thought he would, would not uh, survive the shooting. So I've been wrong before, but I, I thought he was in pretty bad shape. I just remember running, and that's all I remember until uh, they got me in the ambulance. Shots rang out on 16th Avenue South. Police say country singer Sammy Sadler and friend Kevin Hughes were walking together when confronted by a masked gunman. The gunman immediately opened fire. Sattler was shot first and was wounded in the shoulder. The night I got shot, I had an out-of-body experience. I floated up out of my body and watched him operate on me. We stayed there for hours and hours after the body had been uh, taken and the car has been towed. We found Kevin's keys to his car and a hat that said World War II veteran and damn proud of it. I think it was shocking to people, just the way that it was carried out so boldly in the middle of the street like that. A lot of people on Music Row were very concerned, and with the influence they had, they could get resources directed their way very easily. They directed a zone car to stay in that area all the time. We thought maybe there was a robbery, uh, but we thought, how convenient. How did they know that Kevin and Sammy were going to be there? So we thought, was it a target? Could it have been the wrong person? They were really after someone else? So all our options were open at the time. I said it then, I'll say it today. I don't appreciate how the Nashville Police Department treated me like I was a suspect. What they put me through and what they put my family through. Yeah, Sammy and I, we, we had our ups and downs. We had some questions that he really didn't answer too well. Why did you choose to come at that particular time to make the phone call. He thought like we never would let him go as being a possible suspect. And I understand that, but you know, we couldn't. But you know, there was other leads that came up. I think at first the police thought it was kind of a random thing, but then I, I hear that a lot of people on Music Row that kind of knew the characters involved right away suspected some sort of foul play. Now it's why would this happen? Why would they go after this individual? And who would be suspect of doing this? I said, um, you know, it had to be these few, well, some of these few individuals, I pointed out four or five names to them that I thought they should consider and look at. Most of them were the ones that worked for Chuck Dixon promotion. Chuck Dixon was a record promoter, had been around town for a while. The word on the street was that if you paid him $1,500 to $2,000 and uh, took out a, a $750 ad in Cashbox magazine, that he would work your single and try to start getting it up the chart. We decided we needed to talk to him. We didn't really get any vibes, uh, negative vibes or otherwise. Chuck Dixon could be a very good promotion man, but he just got to where he found it'd be a lot easier hiring these other promoters to do some of this dirty work. We learned more and more about Chuck, find out that he was the godfather of the independent record promoters and all that stuff. And we heard all kinds of rumors about him threatening people and that sort of thing. 
Richard was his enforcer. We call him Tony D. So he was always the guy that was going to come after you if you pissed off Chuck. I never knew Richard D'Antoni. I'd only met him once or twice, but he had had Kevin's job before Kevin had him. After D'Antonio left Cashbox, he uh, went into business with Mr. Dixon, that they worked together. They were like partners. We talked to Tony because he had worked at Cashbox and was an independent promoter at one time, but there's nothing to indicate that he's involved at the time. You know, naturally, we have other cases that keep piling up, and we keep working it all we can, and time goes by. It was cold. It was cold for uh, quite some time. And as many crimes that you work, you, you tend to suppress it and you move on. So I had kind of forgot about it until the case broke. And it did bring back a lot of memories because I knew I was the first officer there that night. And I kind of relived it at that time. I came here just like everybody else to try to make my mark on in uh, the music business and in Nashville, but it seems like Nashville made its mark on me. Everyday people caught up in a plan to commit murder. Did you kill your mother? Yes, I did. The ultimate betrayals, friends and family turning on each other. Spell was broken when the handcuffs went click. But just who is the puppet and who's pulling the strings? Accomplice to Murder with Fanny Politan premieres Sunday night, 8, 7 central, only on Court TV. Three years had passed since Kevin Hughes was murdered. In the close country music community, rumors circulated about the identity of the potential killer and the motive. But police were still no closer to solving the case. In 92, we get a phone call from a GBI agent, Del Thomason, who tells us that he might have some information for us. He starts telling us about his informant that he's using, a guy named Steve. And we said, well, we really need to talk to this guy. He said, you know, I'm here to cooperate with you, but we've got an ongoing investigation. And until that investigation is complete, he's off limits. I've always wondered why did it take so long. My family tried to call the police department for the first few years. They would never tell us anything about the case. People didn't really start talking until after Chuck Dixon uh, died in 2001. Dixon was kind of a rough character. People thought he had ties to the mafia and all this different stuff, and people were scared of that. As time goes by, they create a new unit called the Cold Case Unit. I'm one of the first ones over in that unit. And I start looking at cases, and I look at Kevin Hughes, and I think, you know, we left that thing with Steve still unfinished. So I, I called Dell, and he tells me I could talk to him if I wanted to. He tells us that uh, one night, Tony came to the house, and he wanted to buy a pistol. So Steve gave him a pistol, and he went out back of the house on the side of the mountain and test fired it a few times. And then he left later that night. And the next day, 
Kevin Hughes had been killed. He showed me where they'd been test firing the bullets, and it was on the side of a mountain. And he said, look, there are thousands of bullets out here. We've test fired all kinds of guns, semi-automatic, you name it, we've done it. I started to dig up bullets, and they were everywhere. I just start grabbing some. We just hope the good Lord, I mean, that somehow they match. And Steve said, man, all the bullets up here, there had no way. So uh, came back to Nashville, drove over to TBI lab to the firearms examiner's a friend of mine who also plays golf. Of course, at that time, if you submitted a firearms examination, it'd take you six months before you get a result. So I, I kind of said, look, uh, if you'll kind of expedite this, I'll bring you out to Old Hick and we'll play golf. I'll pay for the next round. He said, okay. So the following day, he gives me a call. He says, the first portion of the bullet you sent me, they're all damaged, totally destroyed, not worth examination. He said the rest of them were uh, not even close to being the same caliber, but he says that you have one that's a perfect match. I fell down on my knees because that was a total shock. You know, out of all those bullets on the side of a mountain, that one of them would match. For 13 years, Metro Police tracked and talked to several suspects, including this man, Richard D'Antonio. Wednesday morning, Metro and Nevada authorities captured D'Antonio in Las Vegas, where he worked as a pit boss at a casino. Went out to Las Vegas, Las Vegas homicide, and said, look, we've got a SWAT group that's going to go out. We know where he lives. We're just going to stake out the house. You guys go to lunch. We'll call you when, uh, when we've got him. We did. We went to lunch, and they called us as going, come down to the office. We've got him. I lived 13 and a half years of my life wondering who shot us, why did this happen? The police told me that, Sammy, whenever we catch the person that shot y'all, Kevin Hughes' family is going to be the first to know and you'll be the second. That was a lie. They didn't call me. Dolly Parton's hairdresser called me and told me. I remember when the arrest was made, I tried to get in touch with Sammy Sadler, and I remember his people telling me that he's in hiding because at that point, I think he was still very much afraid of that there might have been other people involved. I'm just a I came here just like everybody else to try to make my mark on in uh, the music business and in Nashville, but it seems like Nashville made his mark on me. And I said, well, you know, are you going to get this handled? And he said, yes, I'll get Kevin Hughes handled or he'll be gone. Thirteen years after the murder of Kevin Hughes, Richard D'Antonio was on trial for first-degree murder. But without the murder weapon or any eyewitnesses, could the state actually convince a jury that it was D'Antonio who pulled the trigger? There was a defendant stand along with his two attorneys, and Mr. Alderman, Mr. D'Antonio, Mr. Frobe. Mr. Alderman, what is the defendant's plea to both counts of that indictment? May it please the court, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Richard Frank D'Antonio is not guilty. Thank you. All right, General Thurman or Morante, do you have an opening statement? Thank you, Go ahead. March the 9th, 1989, he had his dream job. He loved music. 
He's a chart director at Cashbox Magazine. But his dream job turned into a nightmare for him. His dream job cost him his life. Cashbox chart was totally corrupt. It was controlled by Chuck Dixon. And at this time, 1989, nobody could get on that chart unless they paid Chuck Dixon money and bought an ad. But that started to change. Apple Cart was upset in February, March, 1989, because Kevin Hughes started figuring out, I submit, what was going on. So at that time, he exposed his cash box. Cash box is through. Chuck Dixon is through. His business associate, Mr. D'Antonio, he took care of the problem, Kevin Hughes. He couldn't take the chance. But Kevin Hughes would tell people what was going on with cash box. He and Mr. Dixon couldn't afford that. You'll find Richard D'Antonio is a cold-blooded killer who's guilty of first-degree murder. Thank you. Well, their, their strategy was the payola angle. Uh, their strategy was to see that where uh, Kevin was going to try to make the charts uh, honest and it was going to dry up a lot of Tony D or, and Chuck's revenue source so they had to eliminate him in order to prevent that from happening on march 9th 1989 a gunman shot and killed kevin hughes and shot and wounded sammy Sadler. the evidence will show you that over 13 years later richard d'antonio was indicted and arrested there's rumor there's innuendo there's speculation that suggests to the state that Richard D'Antonio is guilty. As you listen closely to the evidence, you will learn that there is one piece of evidence, a single bullet found in a backyard in Georgia, that is critical to the government's case. As you listen to the evidence, you'll realize that there's absolutely no credible evidence linking Richard D'Antonio to a bullet in a backyard in Georgia. You'll learn that Richard D'Antonio is not guilty. Okay, Mr. Thurman, are you ready to call your first witness? Or? Yes, Your Honor. State your name for the court, please. Kyle Hughes. And what was your relationship with Kevin Hughes? His brother. And what was his passion in life? Music. Uh, he loved music. He'd been involved in that his entire life? Yeah, he would uh, make his own music charts up as a kid. Um, Always reading the trading magazines. He's very interested in the artists' lives, how they live their lives. And did you talk to your brother on the phone the night he died? Yes, sir. Approximately what time would that call him? In between 7 and 8. And uh, describe how he was acting on the phone. He talked about having some things he needed to talk with me about, but he didn't want to talk over the phone. Did he stress whether they were important or not? Yeah, he said they were important. How was he acting when he started talking about that? When he, when he, toward the end of the conversation, he acted sort of nervous, um, almost scared to a point. At the end of the conversation, he told me he loved me, which he never did on the phone. Uh, you know, we would, and other times we're on the phone, that was the only time I ever did that. So that's the only time I ever talked to him on the phone he told you that? Yes. Was that the last thing he ever said to you? Yes. You solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you back. I do. Absolutely. I was nervous, uh, you know, uh, but you know, all I could do is get up there and tell what I knew, and that's what I did. Just describe what happened as you got to the car. 
Well, I walked around in front of Kevin's car and reached for the door, sat down and started to reach for the door, and I caught something moving out of the corner of my eye. And I looked up, and there was this guy standing between me and the car door with his arms out, and I saw the gun. I said, oh, my God, this guy's got a gun, and I threw my arms up to cover my head, and that's when he shot me. And what were you able to see of that individual? All I remember was seeing gloves and a mask. Kevin and I had only become friends eight months uh, before all of this. And I feel like we would probably been lifelong friends because we both love music. So I feel like, you know, there's no telling where we could have been in our careers if this hadn't happened. Back at the time that we're talking about 1989, that kind of uh, period, did you, um, when speaking with other people in the industry, did you refer to Cashbox by some other term from time to time? We joked around the office and called it Chuckbox. Chuckbox. Why was that? Because it was common knowledge that Chuck controlled that chart, that trade. But Kevin was making a, a real earnest attempt to, to make it a legitimate chart and trade. A lot of times the stations would just doctor the, the, the playlist that they gave to Cashbox. Sometimes some people got onto the chart, the Cashbox chart, without the song ever being played on the radio. Kevin Hughes was murdered uh, because he did not want to manipulate the charts. He did not want to be part of it, and he threatened to, uh, to blow the whistle on it and go to public. On the day that Kevin was murdered, did Mr. Chuck Dixon call you on that day? Yes, he called me twice. He called around lunchtime, and then he called late that afternoon just before we were going to the movies. And when you spoke with Mr. Dixon, did Mr. Dixon ask you to talk with Kevin Hughes about something? Yes, he did. Chuck had called because Kevin had dropped several of the starter stations that Chuck had control of, and he was upset about that. It was uh, very important to him to convince Kevin to, to uh, keep those stations on the panel, not to drop them. Did you, in fact, do what Mr. Dixon had asked and speak to Kevin about that particular topic? Yes, I did. Did you also communicate to Mr. Hughes the fact that Mr. Dixon was angry when he made that request of you? Yes, I did. He expected that. State your name, please. Robert Douglas Metzger. Did there come a time in the late 80s when you started promoting independent artists? I did, sir. Did you promote the Cashbox magazine at that time? Yes, sir. Who was uh, who was head of Cashboxer at that particular time? Mr. D'Antonio. And at that time, as a promoter, uh, what did you have to do to get one of your songs on a Cashbox chart? You had to do two things. You had to pay Chuck Dixon, and you had to buy an ad. And did you do those things? Yes, sir. And were the charts legitimate? No, sir. So you were paying money just to have a song put on the chart, is that correct? Yes, sir. Shortly before his death, did you have a meeting with Mr. Dixon and Mr. D'Antonio? Yes, yeah. sir. We were about to promote another record on an act uh, named Mickey Jones and had $15,000 to promote this record. I was very concerned about giving them this money to promote the record and then maybe the record not chart or something happened to it. There was a rumor all over Music Road that Kevin was gonna go to the media and he was gonna expose this chart fixing scheme that was going on at Cashbox. And uh, 
you know, I told Mr. Dixon at the time, I said, are you aware of this rumor? And he said, yeah, I've heard that. And I said, well, you know, are you gonna get this handled? And he said, yes, I'll get Kevin Hughes handled or he'll be gone. So that's how you're gonna talk to Mr. D'Antonio and then if he calls you to tape, is that correct? Richard D'Antonio was undoubtedly involved in some shady business at Cashbox Magazine, but manipulation of country music charts for money, payola, is a long way from murder. The prosecution now called on testimony from those who knew D'Antonio best at the time, a friend and his ex-wife. State your name for the court, please. Carolyn Cox. Do you know the defendant here, Richard D'Antonio? Yes, sir. And uh, how, did you know, how do you know Mr. D'Antonio? We were married. And uh, when did you get married, please? In May of 1986. And how long did that marriage last? Just a little over three years. Do you recall a night that Kevin Hughes was killed? Yes. Was Mr. D'Antonio at home that particular night? Not when I went to bed. What time did you go to bed? Between 11 and 12. And did something awaken you? Yes. What was that? Telephone rang, 3 o'clock in the morning. And who was on the phone? Chuck Dixon. And uh, what did he request? He asked to talk to Tony. I said, he's not here because he wasn't in the bedroom. Okay. And I said, what's wrong? He said, nothing. I just want to talk about business. When did you next see Mr. D'Antonio? Right after I hung up the phone, he stuck his head in the bedroom and asked who was on the phone. So that would have been at 3 a.m.? Yes, sir. And uh, did uh, he tell you where he'd been that night? Yes, sir. Where did he tell you he'd been? He told me he'd been to Chattanooga. Did he tell you who he went to Chattanooga to see? Steve Daniels. State your name to the court, please. James Stephen Daniel. I was in Nashville, and I had um, seen a Crime Stoppers program. And was there something specific that came out on that Crime Stoppers program that made you think of Mr. D'Antoni? Um, yeah, at the Crime Stoppers, they talked about the gate or the way the assailant ran. And did they also give you the date of the murder on the Crime Stoppers? Yes. Did that ring something, a bell in your mind? A little bit. Did uh, the Metro detectives come talk to you in Georgia? Yes. Did you cooperate with them at that time? Yes. So that they were gonna talk to Mr. D'Antonio and then if he called you to take us, that correct? Right. Okay, and, and did you do that? Yes. And after they left and contacted Mr. D'Antonio, did he call you? Yes. And did you tape it? Yes. Oh, 
counting that particular tape, how many times uh, since March the 9th, 1989, and Mr. D'Antonio brought up that particular night and, and said to say he was there till 11, 1130? Uh, at least three or four times. So when you were on the tape acting like you didn't remember it, you were basically playing a game with him, is that correct? Correct. State your name for the court, please. Uh, Bill Pridemore. That's always the most frustrating part, not being able to be in the courtroom during the trial. Sometimes you hope that the district attorney will use your testimony early, because once you testify, you can sit in the courtroom and, and uh, watch what's going on. Were you assigned initially to investigate the death of Kevin Hughes back in 1989? Yes, sir, I was. Were you the lead investigator at that time? Yes. And did you go to the scene? Yes, sir. Did you have any physical evidence that was recovered at the scene? Uh, yes, sir, we had a hat. Was that hat also sent out for testing? Yes, sir. Or sent to the police department for testing? Yes, sir, it was. And as part of your investigation, did you go to various locations in this area attempting to locate a place that might sell a hat? Yes, sir, we did. We had every truck stop on the way from Flintstone, Georgia, back to Nashville, and we found that there's only one place that sold that hat at that time, and that was a truck stop in between Chattanooga and Mount Eagle, with Tony D being in Flintstone, Georgia trying to buy a gun and then test firing the gun where we found the bullet. So that connects all the dots. Please, the court, this time the state of Tennessee rests. All right. Mr. D'Antonio, stand up. Have you voluntarily and personally chosen to not testify? Yes, sir. And this is, is this your signature on that document? Yes, sir. Just hands yes. here to me. OK, that's fine. You can have a seat there. And I think Tony D really liked Kevin. I really do. I think he liked Kevin. But with influence from some people, whether it was Chuck or some other independent promoter or whatever, you know, they got the best of him. And I, I think they, they kind of put Tony over the edge. They didn't want to corrupt the music industry in Nashville. Oh, my gosh, country music, Music City, USA. Has your jury arrived at a verdict in this trial? Yes, Your Honor, we have. After waiving his right to testify, Richard D'Antonio would have to rely on his attorneys to tell his side of the story and create reasonable doubt amongst jurors in closing arguments. We're ready now for the final arguments in the case, and is General Morante, you going to lead off? Yes. Go ahead, please. I think the story is about a profile in courage and integrity. Kevin Hughes was an honest kid. Chuck Dixon is trying to push money on him, just trying to push money on him, and Kevin won't take it. I mean, that's integrity. That's integrity. And it's not just integrity, it's courage, too, because Kevin knew. Kevin certainly must have had a sense, and the evidence establishes it, that he was in some danger. Kevin knew that he was up against incredible odds. And yet, he stuck to his principles, and he did what he thought was the right thing to do. And he paid for those principles with his life. There really is no question that the state established overwhelmingly, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the man who did that cold-blooded murder on that night was the defendant, Richard D. Antonio. 
But ladies and gentlemen, with your verdict of guilty today, Kevin Hughes will finally have justice. Thank you. This is not a case about whether it is possible that Richard D'Antonio committed the crimes with which he's charged. This is not a case about whether he could have committed the crimes with which he is charged. This is a case, as the judge has told you and will tell you again, about whether or not the state has proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And their case, ladies and gentlemen, is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt whether on March 9th, 1989, Richard D'Antonio and not Chuck Dixon or Steve Daniel or somebody else committed these crimes. And we know Chuck Dixon probably had a motive. We know that other promoters connected to Chuck Dixon may have had a motive. We know Chuck Dixon had henchmen with guns. We know Steve Daniel was connected to Chuck Dixon. And we know Richard D'Antonio was connected to Chuck Dixon. What we don't know, ladies and gentlemen, is any evidence that establishes beyond a reasonable doubt that Richard D'Antonio was the gunman on the night of March 9th. They don't know it, and after listening to this proof, you don't know it, and that's reasonable doubt. Thank you. Has your jury arrived at a verdict in this trial? Yes, Your Honor, we have. Would you please tell the court what that verdict is? Yes, sir. We, the jury, find the defendant, Richard Frank D'Antonio, on count one, guilty of first-degree murder. On count two, guilty of assault with intent to commit second-degree murder. This is our verdict. Justice was served today, um, and we're just we're so thrilled with every, all the work that everybody's done for us has been tremendous. Nashville's been a great town for this. And this has just been an answer to a lot of prayers. A lot of prayers going into this. The sentence that is a result of this conviction will be that you will be sentenced to a sentence of life with the Department of Corrections in the state of Tennessee. I'm just, I'm just thankful. Uh, you live 14 years of your life not knowing who and why and what, and you finally know, and this guy's going to have to pay for what he did to us. Well, I think there were more involved than just him. I thought they should have dug a lot deeper and investigated more than what they did. They didn't want to corrupt the music industry in Nashville. Oh, my gosh, country music, Music City, USA. It's enough to say murder on Music Row, and there's a case like this. Let's don't get into the details about it. Yeah, I don't feel the justice was really served. It hurts me because, you know, the music community is supposed to rally around their own. And because of what this is all about, payola, nobody rallied around Kevin. Nobody rallied around me. Kevin Hughes and Sammy Sadler did not create how business is done in Nashville, Tennessee. The music community is the one that created how business is done. Unfortunately, I think events occurred along the way that had Sammy as a suspect and he suffered a lot of trauma because of that. And it was unfortunate, and I wish it never happened to him. And he's owed an apology. Just about a mile off of 109. Bullet stopped me. I'm still recording. I'm still touring. 
and uh, we're going to continue to chase our dream and do what we love to do because it's what I love to do. And uh, I'm just here to tell my story and sing a song. I didn't know board out four would go so slow. Sammy and I developed a relationship because of this over the years. And so it is kind of emotional for me because I've talked to Sammy several times over the years, over the last seven or eight years. We've had deep, deep conversations. It's been cathartic for him, it's been cathartic for me. Kevin's such a bright kid, and all he wanted to do was make the music business legit. You just think, you know, how things could be so different. What he did, was it worth taking a man's life? Richard D'Antonio spent the rest of his life in prison. He died in 2014. Sammy Sadler recently released a record titled 1989 and has also written a book called A Hit with a Bullet About the Crime. I'm Tamron Hall. Thanks for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. You can see new episodes every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, and you can see me on my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we bring you the latest true crime stories. Thank you so much for downloading, and as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.